You know, honest to God, sometimes I do these shows to stop myself from binge eating at night. Not to stop myself, but to space it out. Like, I'll, I'll have some snacks. Because that's the time of day that it gets me. I can go all day. I can wake up and go all day. And part of the night. You're part of the night. I can go all day and part of the night. You heard of that one? But I can go all day and part of the night without binge eating. But for whatever reason, it's like the clock strikes 11 or 12. You know, it's late. It's the worst time you could do it. It's like right before bed. But once I sit down for the night, that's when it that's when it hits me. When I sit down for the night, even if I have other things I can be doing, that's when the binge eating hits me. I don't know what it is though. All day and it doesn't I don't even have a, any remote desire like even when I'm smoking weed, I could smoke weed all day and I'll enjoy each meal throughout the day, but I don't binge eat. It's at night. It's the end of the night. I binge eat. So sometimes I do these. Sometimes I'm just like, "You know what? I'm going to talk for an hour and that that at least gives a little bit of time. That at least will stop me from making myself sick." But, um, it's weird too. You know, I've been doing intermittent fasting as they call it, which I don't even, I don't even call it anything. I don't even give it a name. I'm doing it. I'm doing IF. I see people use acronyms. There was a lady who was going to buy a piece of furniture from me who flaked. And she asked me what town I lived in. So I, I looked up her name just to, to see like, oh, is she coming from a different town? Because that, that obviously changes things when you're arranging like pickup times and transactions. So I just Googled her name. I, just, I wanted to see where she was coming from. And I don't normally do that, but this is business, you know. And uh, I ended up seeing like her social media account. And she was talking about something. And she used this acronym that I'd never heard. And I, I looked it up. Like, and she made it sound like it could have been anything from like a religion or spiritual thing to... Um, I don't even know, to a diet. And then it ended up being some diet I hadn't heard of that has some like three-letter acronym. And I was like, oh yeah, that, that means that you're really into that. If you're referring to some sort of diet or technique or, or just anything, I mean, I think that's true for anything. Aside from like government institutions like the FBI or NSA or CIA, usually, you know, if you use an acronym for something, it means you're like, you're in it. You're into that thing. Because nobody else will know what you're talking about. So that was the case with this, where like I saw that this lady who flaked on me, maybe not, maybe maybe she'll surprise me, and she just needed a few extra days or a week or a month, or I'll so I'll hear from her in a year. But when I saw this acronym, I had to look it up because I mean I even follow some of that stuff. You know, I'm into fitness. I'm into. Uh, to some degree nutrition like I don't pay attention to it. I feel like I learned what I need to know nutrition is one of those things where like once you learn what you need to know what else do you need to know the only thing that's going to change is like whether the doctors are saying eggs are good for you this week versus next and you shouldn't listen to that eggs are obviously fine like you just know I got an intuitive level like I don't it's been a while it's been a couple years since I've had eggs I was eating them every day for a while I was eating hard-boiled eggs uh, like two for breakfast or something like that for a while. 
when you haven't when you have a hard when you have when you have just a hard boiled egg you know that it's fine you know that it's good for you you can feel it you can feel the way your body processes it people are like eggs good for you. obviously like scrambled eggs like what are these studies based on obviously if you're putting like butter and cheese and like frying the egg when they say eggs are good or bad for you, like obviously there's a difference. It's, it's like when people talk about red meat and you don't know whether these studies are talking about people who have a hamburger and fries or somebody who's eating a good cut of steak because there's a difference, you know. You can't just say red meat. Anyway, I, I don't follow nutrition stuff like because one, like doctors and experts, they're always going to fluctuate on some of these silly little things like what's good for you this week versus next but once you kind of learn the basics and, and once you learn them, because I mean, I heard, I heard the basics my entire life, but I had to actually start eating healthy to, you know, figure out, okay, what, what does it actually mean to eat healthy? You always hear what's bad for you. Like growing up, I knew what was bad for you and that was all I ate. You know, when you have a single mother, it's almost impossible and you're as stubborn as I am, it's almost impossible to reason with somebody like me about eating healthy. So it was just burgers, fries, pizza, chicken tenders, the way a lot of people just eat all the time now. But anyway, once I learned like, okay, this is what's actually good for you and what's not, it's like, I don't need to keep revisiting it. Some people turn their diet into their identity or their personality. It's really weird. And then they use acronyms like this lady or like intermittent fasting, like don't have to call it anything. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't even need a name. Like, yeah, when you're learning about it, it's, I guess it's good that you can Google that or something. You can Google that. But, uh, I, I even hear people refer to it as like IF. I'm doing 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 IF. That's a new voice. I'm doing IF. Can't tell what it is. It's like, there's a little bit of British, British in there. And I, I was told by a British listener I have a terrible British accent. That just means I haven't workshopped it enough. I used to have a good one. Like, I when I was about, uh, we did Macbeth when I was in fifth grade, no, sixth grade. In sixth grade, we did like a classroom. It wasn't like a big stage production. It was just like an in-classroom production, if you can call it that. In-classroom production. It was an in-classroom production of Macbeth and I played Macduff, which at the time I didn't realize that like all the Scots have Mac Mac in their name. So I, I thought it, I was like, who the heck is Macduff? It's like a, like a cut rate Macbeth, but I actually like, I was glad I played Macduff, but I used a British accent, like what the best I could do in sixth grade. And what's funny is one of the sixth grade teachers was a Britishman. His name was Mr. Bondsmith. He was a ginger. I didn't have him, but he was one of three sixth grade teachers, and we did everything in collaboration. And he would tell people, if they would do something wrong, you'd say, poor decision. I can't do it. Can't do his voice. Like, he had picked up a little bit of, a, like, a little American in there. Like you could tell he, he had lived in the U.S. for a little while, but he still, he retained his British accent. He was, I guess he was like a, Brit a British alpha male. Because he had he had served in the Air Force, and he brought in his helmet, and, and I think I think he wore his flight gear to class one day or something as like a show and tell sort of thing. But he was like this big brawny ginger guy. 
a British alpha male, but he was a British alpha male. So in America, you know, he wasn't like the tough gym coach, football coach. He was still like a little bit reflective or something. Hence like saying like poor decision. And that's all he would say. He would say poor decision and he would turn his head. And at that point in time, we had to get passes. Like we got a, we were, we were issued like a laminate, like a cheap laminated license to use the internet. And we had to display it. Like they had um, some way to display it on the computer when you used it. And this is 1997, 1998 at the latest. So it was interesting. Like the, the internet was very new in schools. Kids using the internet was very new. And you, it's not like you had internet time to just browse. But it was like if you were using the internet in class, you had to display your card. And one day during like an open session what we called an open session. My friends and I went to Mr. Bondsmith's class because he was the cool teacher. And my friend ended up using one of the computers. And, you know, there were like two or three computers at most in the classrooms. It's not like our classrooms were teched out. They were teched out. Not like our classrooms were teched out. Not like they were teched out. It's a new one I'm going to use, teched out. This place is teched out. Uh, there were just like two or three computers, you know, which, which seemed like a lot at the time. But now it doesn't, you know, in today's world, two or three computers in a classroom doesn't seem crazy. But so you could just kind of go on to them and you had to display your pass. My friend didn't bring his pass and he used the Internet for a second in Mr. Bondsmith's class. And, you know, we thought that he didn't know it was kind of like a free it was for some reason that day we were just having like fun like they were just like you know what today you can just wander from class to class and have fun it wasn't a normal day i don't know what the circumstances were maybe it was lunch <laughs> maybe maybe it wasn't a weird day maybe we were just on our lunch break and we went to mr bondsmith's class we were probably just at lunch but uh it was this crazy thing called lunch but uh my buddy nick in fact who i talk about a lot on here he went to he used the internet in mr bondsmith's class and as we were leaving like, we didn't think anything of it. We were like, oh, it's fine. Whatever. And as we were leaving, Mr. Bondsmith turns his head from his desk. He says, Nick, uh, are you using the computer without uh, just without your internet pass? And Nick was like, uh, yeah. And Mr. Bondsmith just looked at him and goes, poor decision. And just turned back to doing what he was doing. And we were like, oh. And then sure enough, he ended up getting, like, detention. He ended up being punished. Poor decision, but he would say that like, and it meant like in the in another like if I can talk, another teacher would have been yelling in those situations. Like Mr. Bondsmith would quietly say "poor decision," and you could feel the period on the end. I didn't even have him for a teacher, and I knew about this, but he would say "poor decision" with a period on the end. You could feel the period. It wasn't aggressive. It wasn't mean. It wasn't even cold. It was just kind of this quiet, poor decision. And it meant you were in trouble. Another teacher, like, if, it, if he had been an American alpha male, it would have been like, Nick, you know, we, were you on the computer without, without permission? You know, it would have been a much more aggressive thing. But with him, it was just, did I see you doing that? Okay. Poor decision. And then you'd hear later from your teacher that you were in trouble. Detention. But anyway, where were we going? Um, where were we at? It was the accent that uh, 
the weird new accent, but I don't, I don't remember what the weird new accent was saying. I feel like there was a, a thread on, I, I was on there. I feel like there was an idea there. Oh, well. Oh, well. Poor decision. You start talking about Mr. Bondsmith. Poor decision. Totally unrelated idea, but I was thinking tonight about how it'd be amazing if they made you go through, or if it was, maybe they didn't force you, but if you were expected to go through a, a ceremony, like, like, just like you have a marriage ceremony, if you were expected to have a divorce ceremony and you had to invite all of the same people who attended your marriage with maybe a, a few new people to replace the people that died. So if some people who attended your marriage ceremony died in the meantime, you have to find new people to replace them. But other than that, like your divorce ceremony has to be equal expense to your marriage ceremony and all the same people have to attend. I haven't quite thought about like what they would do because it doesn't really feel right that people would applaud. Maybe just look, maybe tell you a poor decision. Hey, there you go. Maybe just instead of saying congratulations, all of the people at your divorce ceremony would just say poor decision and just look at you and not have fun. They play really morose music, like funeral dirges. You get a DJ. Instead of a DJ, it's an organist who plays funeral dirges, just really haunting organ work. That'd be interesting though, because it would discourage people from just getting divorces because they're bored. You know, there's, I mean, I'm, I'm the product of divorce. I don't have an opinion on my parents' divorce. That's interesting. Like, it's just a fact of life. I have zero opinion on whether it was the right thing, the wrong thing. I just don't have an opinion. I've thought about it before, because I think other, other members of my family might have an opinion on it. Obviously, you know, my, your parents have an opinion on it because they got divorced be weird if they didn't have an opinion on, on their divorce. But you know, I think maybe other members of my family might feel one way or another. And uh, I can tell you, I don't really feel anything. I'm just like, my life was exactly what it was. And there's probably good things and bad things about what happened. Uh, you know, I know that my mom had her reasons. They weren't like severe. No, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't severe, like criminal reasons like some people have. It was just, uh, you know, she felt it was the right decision for her, but, you know, I don't have to have an opinion on it. It's just simply a fact of life. And it happened when I was like five or something. So, you know, it is what it is. But, you know, there's some people who just get divorced because they're bored. That's actually one of the bigger reasons. Because, I mean, it's kind of like abortion. You know, I think divorce is, is a lot like abortion. There's a reason why those things kind of go together in terms of like Christians don't believe in divorce and Catholics didn't used to believe in divorce or whatever it is, whoever, whoever didn't believe in divorce, certain religious groups don't believe in divorce or think it should be avoided at all costs. Kind of like they don't believe in abortion and at best believe it should be avoided at all, at all costs. And I agree with the latter two ideas though. I, I agree that divorce should be avoided at all costs because I've known some people who, who have jumped into marriages I've known people who have gotten shotgun weddings and things like that, and it's weird. I just It's like somebody who moves in with a significant other too soon. That's just extremely foreign to me. I just can't imagine it. 
like just jumping into a living arrangement or a marriage or something like that. But, you know, I'm kind of of the opinion that like, unless you have a good reason, maybe, maybe don't get divorced, but you probably shouldn't have gotten married in the first place in that instance. Uh, but there are valid reasons. You know, it's kind of like abortion where like there are situations where abortion should be available. I believe that. But it should be avoided at all costs. I don't think it's a good thing. I think it's actually a horrible thing. And, uh, but I understand there are situations medically and, you know, maybe, uh, some other exceptional situations where it makes sense, but not without some sort of severe cost. And, you know, I don't know, but, uh, I kind of feel the same way about divorce where it's like, you should avoid it at all costs. And it's weird to me that like with the increase in divorce, with, with divorce being so casual, you know, because I mean, a lot of my friends, you know, most of my friends had, their parents were still married growing up. I was one of relatively few people in my social circle that I can remember who had di divorced parents. It didn't cause me any grief. Nobody ever gave me shit about it. Like, one, t there was one time, actually, the one time that I remember somebody saying something that was offensive about the fact that my parents were divorced. It was a friend of mine. He was a good friend of mine. So it was just, we had like a, a playground fight. And uh, I'd mentioned something that his dad said. Like we had been at his house and his dad said something goofy. And I wasn't even trying to make fun of him about it. I just brought it up and it, but it hit a nerve. I was like, oh, wasn't it funny when your dad said blah, blah, blah. But for some reason, I, th I think he thought I was making fun of his dad. When I really wasn't, it was just like his dad said something goofy, like a dad would say or do. And I was just like, oh yeah, you know, remember when your dad said that? And he just like shot back with anger and he was just like, at least I have a dad. Like this is the classic thing you say. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I, I have a dad. He's like, at least I have a dad who, who's around. And I, I remember not being hurt by it, interestingly. Because it wasn't a sore spot with me. Because like I, I went to... You know, my dad was a part of my life. Like, he took me to the Seahawks games. He had season tickets to the Seahawks games. So I saw him, like, almost, you know, every other weekend. We would go to a an NFL game together. And it was a bonding experience. He would come to every single sports game I did. He, was, he came to our house for Christmas. Even when he had a, a new wife and, you know, my half-sister, they would still come to our house for Christmas. So... You know, it didn't feel like my dad like wasn't involved. Like he wasn't, you know, part of my house. So, and I knew that. You know, I think my mom had instilled that in me. And uh, and it's just you just know it. You know, and and I know not everybody has that. Like some people don't have a dad in their life. I've known many people who don't know their dad. Like like never met him. Uh, my sister had a boyfriend when she was in junior high, and he he was he got really close to our family. And he he. Uh, never knew not only did he not know his dad his mom never told him who he even was and she would tell him different things like one time she told him he was like a cowboy another time she told him he was something else and what's crazy about that is his mom was like this overeducated phd principal of a like a upper class like private school or something like that like an upper class it might have been public but it was like some sort of upper class like esteemed high school so it's not like she was some trashy lady. It was like she was like this PhD, like 
from New Zealand, so she had this like thick accent. She was very refined, and it was just weird. Like like she never told like and her, and her other kids had a different dad. She never told him who his dad even was. Like he didn't know his name. He didn't know who he was or what he did, what he looked like. That seems like a form of child abuse or something. That's insane. Like to not even let this kid like know who his dad was. Like what? Who was he? Was he a serial killer? Yeah, serial killer. But anyway, like when this friend said that to me, I remember being like, "Whoa!" Like one, he completely misinterpreted what I was saying about his dad. Or I hit some kind of weird raw nerve involving his dad. But then two, I remember being like, what he said doesn't hurt me. Like, at least I have a dad. Well, at least I have a dad who's who's around. Like, it didn't hurt me. I remember being mad that he went there. Like, I remember feeling like just being like mad that he would think that that would hurt me. And we moved on, like we were good friends, but it, I, just, I never forgot it because it was the only time, despite being a product of divorce, it was the only time that somebody, and it makes sense that it would be a good friend, a childhood friend, and he's now a woman, he's the one that I've mentioned who's now a woman, so, you know, take from that what you will. I was, It, it was kind of a catty thing to say to me, but... uh no, I think there there are circumstances like abortion, even even though they're different. I think that they are kind of related in a strange way, not even a strange way. I think it makes sense why I'm I'm relating them: divorce and abortion, 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 divorcing. Talking about divorcing, divorcing, abortion. But uh, yeah, it should be something that should be avoided at all costs. But there should be circumstances in which you can do it. But what I, what I keep trying to get at here is that, like I think the increase in divorce comes from boredom. Like marriage should be super fulfilling, and I've never been married. You know, I've had very few long term relationships, uh, so I'm I'm no expert. But it doesn't seem like a good reason. Just on board, and that that tends to be a, usually like a. An independent woman's argument. Like I read an article about that a little while back. It caused some controversy about like this woman wrote this article about how she left her husband because she was bored. And usually that means I saw another man. I met another man I like, but that was the case in this story. And it was supposed to be empowering or something, but it was like this story about how a woman like left her husband because she was bored and then like found another man and then it turns out that man wasn't interested in her so she was just alone but yet it was it was kind of framed as if the whole thing was supposed to be empowering but it wasn't it wasn't like i was alone and that was empowering it was kind of i don't know it was just kind of a sad story but you hear that a lot like people just get bored of each other and i mean maybe it's a good reason i don't know i've never been in that situation i've never been married and bored but it's also always been the joke about marriage like the the old timey joke about marriage is that it's like oh you're so bored of this person oh our life is so boring like that's like a an old timey stand up comic sort of joke is like this is so boring but there's all, also there's there's also something kind of like virtuous and great about that like and people kind of cope with that by like acknowledging that yeah this has gotten boring but isn't that funny I don't know. It's just, it's interesting how that's changed. Like, it's interesting that, like, divorce is way more common now. But those sort of old-timey jokes about your wife are unacceptable. 
And jokes about the opposite sex are unacceptable. Like, if you say something critical of women now, if you're a man, you say something critical of women, or you, you make a joke about femininity or the way women are, it's, it's taken as misogyny. And there, I'm sure there are jokes that cross a line. Like, of course, there, of course, there are jokes directed at women and wives that are cruel and meant to hurt them or hold them back or whatever it is. But there's a whole range of humor that's totally acceptable. And it, it goes back as far back as stand up comedy has been a thing. You know, it probably goes back way further than I even know. And I think that that sort of humor is one of the ways that people coped with the boredom of marriage and relationships. But anyway, I don't want, to, I don't need to go into relationship talk here. Just the, a divorce ceremony. I'm sure it would really discourage people. It would really make them think it through. And when you think about it, like it really, divorce should be ceremonial. If it's going to be ceremonial going in, it should be ceremonial going out. Like what if we treated death the same way we treat divorce? Like we make a big deal about birth, but what if we treated death like it was just like, eh, I'm going to sign some papers, but we're not going to do anything. I'm not going to think about this person. Maybe some people do that. Shifting topics again, I was on a conference call earlier and a guy actually said, hey, can we shift topics for a second? And he, and he um, brought up the recent shooting, shootings. And uh, we don't, the group of us, like we never talk about like current events or politics or anything like that. And this guy, he's an older conservative guy. He's an older, moderate, conservative guy. I really like him. He's a really good guy. But he, he brought that up. And I could kind of tell, like, the rest of us were a little apprehensive to discuss it because I don't even know what these guys really believe. I know, I know kind of what one of them believes. I know, I know they, have a, they have a good perspective on things. Like, nobody's out of their mind with politics one way or another. But we don't talk about these things during, when we make these calls. And it was kind of like, I, th- I could tell there was kind of an awkward moment when this guy brought up the shootings, but it ended up being a good discussion. I mean, it ended up being, I'm glad he did because you kind of get to see how different, how people's minds work on different topics. And the, the older guy who brought it up though, he was, you know, I think he's in his late sixties. I think he's like 60. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I think he's in his late sixties, you know, has, a, ha, has kids who have kids. He's a great, what they call a grandfather. I've heard of it. A grandfather. But, uh, he said, like, you know, what he said, what do these shooters make you think of? And I, I don't know how to answer that question. You know, it's a it's an interesting prompt. He said, like, what do these shooters make you think of? And I was just like, I was stumped. Like, it, it seemed like a riddle or something. I was like, I don't, you know, I said, I don't, I don't know. I mean, they just kind of seem, they make me think of them. They make me think of, like, what, what they did. You know what I mean? It's like. What does a mass shooter make you think of except for mass shooters? But he said, like, the Joker. He's like, they're a lot like the Joker because they uh, they spread chaos. And I think he had forgotten that uh, one of those shooters, like the Aurora shooter some years back, actually was mimicking the Joker. Like, he was, he had taken on, he gotten obsessed with the Joker, like Heath Ledger's Joker, probably. I dropped my phone. But, uh, so it's like, 
it's not lost on these shooters. Like that one shooter even identified as the Joker, basically. And so this guy, he's he's not wrong for thinking that at all, you know, like because he, he he said like they he's like what did, basically the, it went like what did these guys make you think of? And I I didn't know what to say. He's like the Joker, and he's like because they basically are just out there to spread chaos. And that's true. I mean that what he's right. You know they don't make me think of the Joker. I mean maybe that's what these guys want to be or something, but. That is what they do. I get why he's saying that. And it's chaos. It's basically chaos at the expense of others. And there's a lot of bad things that are exactly that. Like, I'll, not every bad thing, but it's like chaos at the expense of others is basically what it is. Because, you know, if it's, there's a kind of chaos that's at, at the expense of nobody that's a good chaos. And that's basically, that's like chaos magic. You know, I feel like chaos magic is basically chaos you know, for the greater good or something. It's, it's chaos that's definitely not at the expense of others. It's kind of like Levian Satanism or something where it's like this is Satanism at the expense of nobody else. Because when we think about like, you know, Satanism just on its own, when something is satanic, we think sacrifice, the taking of souls, the controlling of people, the hurt the hurt that it does. So when you think of like like traditional Satanism, you think of like oh it's it's uh, it's definitely at the expense of others. The entire thing feeds off other people's souls. But Levian Satanism was sort of like oh this is like a, a philosophical Satanism that's at, not at the expense of anybody. With with kind of a self defense idea built in, where it's like but if somebody tries to do something at your expense. They become expendable. And that's actually in Anton LaVey's like precepts or commandments. There's something about that, which is like, don't bother anybody. But if somebody bothers you, attack them with like the utmost viciousness. I can't remember the wording, but it's along those lines. It's kind of what I'm saying here. And that's, you know, and obviously there's a parallel between like chaos magic, capital C, capital M and Levian Satanism, like those things go kind of hand in hand. Same sort of people have been interested in them. But that's kind of, you know, I don't, I don't go with the capital C, capital M chaos magic, but chaos magic to me is basically like, it's chaos, like it's generative chaos. It's chaos, it's, it's intended to like create and generate. It's productive chaos, which is to say good. It's not destructive chaos. And I don't think about chaos magic. I've gone through phases in my life. Like there was a part of 2017 and probably into 2018 where I was living very chaotically before and after I quit drinking, but I was living very chaotically, but I kind of knew what I was doing. The thing is though, it's like, even if it's a generative, this is what I've learned about chaos magic in my own life. Okay. It's that, uh, even when it's generative and productive and you know it is, and it's kind of about momentum where like when you, when you create chaos, that's meant to be generative. It's, it's largely about like doing things that keep that momentum going. It's like keeping the wheel spinning and you throw a lot of different angle. You throw a lot of different uh, things at it and approach it from a lot of different angles to keep it spinning and I was very much doing that. And I could, I could go into detail. I think I'll keep it. I think I'll just keep it uh, 
mysterious for now, but I was doing a lot of things that were intended to keep that wheel spinning that were chaotic. And a lot of it had to do with humor. You know, a lot of it was kind of like approaching life with a sense of humor, like just embracing the full chaotic adventure of life and uh, laughing about it. But the thing is, I found that that was really alienating to people. Like, even though it was generative and productive, and I, I do feel like I knew what I was doing, I found that it alienated other people. And inevitably, I think I do that. Inevitably, I think I'm somebody who finds ways to alienate other people. But I definitely found that was the case when I was doing that. And it ended up being kind of frustrating. It was like, don't you understand what I'm doing? Don't you understand that I'm keeping the wheel spinning? But anyway, you know, you know, I just said, like, chaos at the expense of others. I mean, to say the least, that's what school shootings are. But then you think about, like, order at the expense of others. Order at the expense of others is just as bad as chaos at the expense of others. Maybe sometimes it's worse. I think they both have their um, peaks and valleys. Uh, but, uh, you know, order at the expense of others, that's pretty obvious. We, we know how governments, how authoritarian governments do that. We know how people do that even in their daily lives, like the way someone runs a household, the rules of a house. Order at the expense of others is horrible. And even outside of governments and stuff, like I, I kind of think of serial killers as doing that. You know, I've talked about the, the difference between serial killers and mass shooters many times over the years, and it's pretty obvious, but still I think it's worth commenting on. But I, I think of spree shooters and mass shooters, it's like it's chaos, I think my friend is right in saying like, you know, I would never say the Joker thing, but it's like, I think he's right for seeing it as a, an exercise in just pure ruthless chaos. But ruthless order is awful as well. And I think of serial killing as a form of that. Like I know, like I, I was talking a couple months ago, a few months ago, a couple few months ago about how when you actually see footage of an attack, it's not the way it's dramatized. It's not the way that it, it, like when you imagine a serial killer breaking into someone's house and killing them, you imagine it's more orderly than it is. And you also imagine it's slower and more dramatic than it is. It's like Israel Keys, that serial killer who killed himself in prison and he did some interviews with uh, law enforcement before he killed himself. I remember one thing when he, he killed this old couple, this older couple, and he, he broke through their glass door and then he like stormed their, um, their bedroom where they were sleeping. And they asked like, you know, well, didn't that like wake them up? And he said, well, no, I mean, I made it to their bedroom from the door in like three seconds. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's something you don't imagine. Like you imagine a guy like that breaking into a house and slowly creeping like a cartoon villain through the house. Reality is he bum rushed the house. Like he, he broke that door and then he like ran into the bathroom, like light or he ran into the bedroom, like lightning. And that's not really what I imagine. I don't think that's what most people imagine. It's not the way that murder is dramatized. Murder is dramatized as like this slow lurching thing. And I, I talked on here before about the video I saw of like a man kidnap, attacking and kidnapping a woman from her door cam footage. And I, I don't, I don't look for things like that. I don't seek things like that out. I don't like to see those things, but sometimes I see them 
And I, I'm fascinated by my own, I guess, surprise at like the guy, like he, he comes running at the, she's, she's unlocking her front door at night and he comes running out of the shadows at full speed. And it's so fast. And he just like tackles her, wraps his arms around her and they're just like thrashing and fighting. And it's, you know, if someone were just to describe it to me, like, oh, a man attacked a woman and like dragged her off and she's missing and her door cam footage caught it. Like in my head, I'm imagining him like each step is very slow and deliberate and his arms are up like some cartoon character. And then he like slowly wraps his arms around her and just lifts her up and carries her off. The reality is it's chaos. Like the way the guy tackled her and grabbed her and pulled her off into the shadows, every single moment of it was like a, an erratic movement and fight. It was just, it was just like, yeah, that's how it really is, I guess. Maybe sometimes it's that sort of slow thing, like maybe sometimes, but most of the time I think that kind of thing is far more uh, chaotic than we realize. But that said, like the, like, and, and that's what I was going to say about serial killers is, we hear about these murders and we read about serial murders and I think it's easy to imagine they're, they're dramatic. They're like something we would see in a movie when in reality, I think they are more chaotic. Like when a guy storms, you know, a house or even if he creeps into the bedroom and like wakes up the victim, I think there's an immediacy to that. that's hard for us to visualize unless we actually see it because it's not what we see in our heads. And I think the actual attacks, even in serial murder, are often very chaotic in the moment. But the whole thing is very orderly. There's usually a plan. It's some sort of fantasy or obsession that the person's had in their head. They're planning on doing it again and again. They're thinking about disposal. They're thinking about secrecy. They're covert. They want to, if, if they're good at it they they don't want to leave a trace so there's this orderliness to the to every everything except maybe the attack itself but even the attack itself they want it to be orderly in many cases like maybe not ted bundy like you know bashing in you know the heads of <coughs> sorority girls and like biting their nipple so hard it like rips it off or whatever he did that's very chaotic but like when you think about a guy like joseph d'angelo who it's like he would uh, case houses for who knows how long and break in and tie everybody up and stack dishes on the doorknob so that if anybody opens the door, dishes crash as sort of a, a makeshift alarm system, you know, and he would go around the house and he, he would have it all staged basically exactly the way he wanted it so that he could do everything in this very orderly way. So I think these guys want it like many serial killers. They want it to be orderly. But it's, it's order at the expense of other people, obviously. And uh, the same is obviously true for authoritarian governments. And I mean, you know, here I am saying like chaos at the expense of other people is bad. Order at the expense of other people is bad. Well, I think anything at the expense of other people is bad. So, I mean, you could go there with it, but I just kind of wanted to explore this. Talking about chaos magicians. Chaos magicians. Think about that idea of the chaos magician, though, and it's it's like the drunken master. You know, you don't have to call it a chaos magician. That's sort of what the drunken master is. Like, even in martial arts, the drunken master, it's like he can barely stand up, 
but somebody's firing arrows at him and he's dodging each one perfectly. He like haphazardly swings his sword, but it cuts someone with expert precision. Like that's the idea of the drunken master. And he's like, he's living in this state of chaos, but he's keeping the wheel spinning. And he knows all the movements to make. Or, you know, it's, it's also the crazy wisdom. You know, this idea in Eastern spirituality, and it's found everywhere, but crazy wisdom, where it's like the Zen master who's just a maniac who says nonsense and laughs to himself. It's basically a chaos ma- magician. You know, and you'll hear these stories about Zen masters from ancient periods who like their students are just like standing there and the master is just like babbling or talking about nonsense. And that's what makes the student go like, Oh, because I mean, that's kind of what, uh, you know, Zen koan is. It's like, it's like a little bit of nonsense that you can't comprehend. Like we've gotten used to those ideas, like the sound of one hand clapping, you know, it's, it's basically like an unanswerable question. It's a riddle. And it causes your brain to basically break down or give up on trying to find an answer. And that's sort of one of the gateways to enlightenment or whatever you want to call it, is the idea that, oh yeah, you know, there is no answer to this riddle. There is no answer to this silly little phrase. So, you know, Zen kind of uses nonsense and chaos in its teachings without saying it's even the teaching, which is the idea behind the crazy wisdom of the the maniacal old master. He's not telling you, hey, listen to me, like this nonsense is actually what's going to help you. The fact that I laugh at everything, the fact that I maniacally laugh at everything, I'm not going to tell you that's part of this, and maybe it's not even, maybe he's not even trying to teach. Maybe he's not even trying to pass on anything at all. Because it can't really be crazy wisdom if it's trying to be crazy wisdom. And that itself is a, a Zen koan. The, the crazy wisdom of the Zen master can't actually you know, intend to be crazy wisdom, otherwise the spell is broken. Talking about chaos magicians, a case magician. Are you talking about case magician? Case magician? Case magician. Talking about case magician? Case in order. Case in order. Ordering case. I'm going to start saying case. When I bring up chaos, like when that when my friend brought that up earlier on the phone, when he's like, you know, what does it you know, make you think of? The Joker, because they're spreading chaos. I'd be like, oh, case? You're talking about case? Case magician. He's the case magician. Some people call him a lawyer, but we call him the case magician. He works magic. If you if you pay his retainer fee, he'll work some magic for you because he's the case magician. But I, I don't know. I like that idea. I'll always like the idea of the chaos magician, the drunken master, you know, the laughing. Buddha, the crazy wisdom. There doesn't seem to be any other option, you know, depending on who you are. I mean, that's one of the only things that gives me relief, really. Like, even though it can be alienating, 
you know, the fact that that exists, that, that that mode of being exists is really one of the only things in the last five years that's given me relief is just knowing that you can take that approach without even trying. You can keep the wheel spinning without even trying, it turns out. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free